The Zone Coverage Podcast Network. This podcast is presented in front of a live Astadio audience. Hey, hey, it's another episode of Midwest Swing. You can find us on Twitter at Midwest Swing Pod. And on Twitter at Zone Coverage MN. I'm your host, Brandon Warren. You can find me on Twitter at Brandon underscore Warren. Rolling solo in the studio today, of course, with the exception of producer at I am Justin Bailey on Twitter. You guessed it, his name is Justin Bailey. You got that mic on over there? Yes, I do. And so, much to your dismay as a Milwaukee Brewers fan, filling in for Tom Schreier, <laughs> who is on the ground in Cleveland covering your Minnesota Twins for a very, very important three-game set. Yeah, instead of subjecting you to another terrible Uber call, yeah, we enlisted some help. And it's Matt Trueblood, friend of the show, at M.A. Trueblood on Twitter. What's up, man? Should I not be in an Uber right now? Is that Was that wrong? Well, it, it's... I got to tell you. <laughs> uh, it, it's okay as long as you're not underwater, because apparently that's what Tom was from Boston, and he, he should be at the park by now. I think the clubhouse for the Twins opens here in a few minutes. Surprisingly enough, we don't have a lineup yet, but I assume Rocco has gone to the triage unit to see who's available today. And so the Indians lineup is out. Nothing too surprising there. But we'll talk about that here in a little bit. First of all, how are things going for you? How's the season treated you? It's going fine. Just uh, the been a season of change for me. We moved. I sort of switched phases with my day job. So a lot of things changing and now kids off to school, but uh, yeah, it's all going pretty well. Good. And we'll talk about the Cubs as well. Still in contention for a postseason spot, not completely out of it in the division, but certainly fairly dim proposition there. But we'll talk about that before we get into the end of the show. In general, though, let's talk about some baseball stuff. First of all, I want to know, we got about, what, two, two and a half weeks left in the season. What are the storylines that you're looking at right now or you're most intrigued by right now? I mean, the really compelling things at the moment are the two big wild card races. Right. Um, it's easy to focus in on those, although hard to sort of wrap our brains all the way around them because it's it's three teams for two spots in the AL. It's, you know, I guess four or five teams for one or two spots in the NL. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a bit of a mess, but those are what's going to end up being the drama down the stretch. Unless the Cardinals or the twins falter and let the teams, you know, trailing them catch up here. Of course, we'll know a lot more about that by the end of this weekend. Right. Um, Failing that, you know, it, it's those wild card races, and then the question of not only how much do we consider making the wild card race, uh, making it into the wild card game, the attainment of a playoff spot, and how much don't we? And then whichever one of these teams wins any given wild card game, how big a threat will they be in the division series? These are all things we can sort of try to suss out over the last fortnight. And more than that, it's really just fun to watch them fight for. You know, especially for some of these teams, maybe it's not an ideal situation that they're in at this point, but it's get this or you're going to probably end up with nothing and be going home very, very frustrated. And so 
Well, and so these wildcard teams are almost certainly going to play Houston and the Dodgers right out of the shoot too. Is that not correct? Uh, that's the way it's shaping up. Yeah, I, Houston's opened up a few games on the Yankees. It, it's still within a margin where it could be New York playing whoever wins the wild card in the division series, but I think it's going to be Houston. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Dodgers have it completely sewn up in the National League. So, uh, yeah, that's a pretty daunting proposition for whoever makes it out of these races, especially since it looks like they're going to have to kind of use up their best pitchers, put forth their best effort even over the final weekend of the season just to get as far as the wild card game. Um, what rookie debuts have you enjoyed this month? I mean, Jesus Lazardo obviously is in that mix. Kyle Lewis has been really good. There's been some fun rookie debuts in the last, I mean, month or so. If you want to go Aristides Aquino for the Cincinnati Reds as well, and I'm not sure if I said that correctly, but um, Nico Horner for the Cubs as well. There have been some interesting guys who have come up. Who has caught your eye in the last month or so? I think my favorites are are probably the first two you mentioned there, just sure. in terms of the storylines. Uh, Lizardo, it's been a long trek back from injury for him and a, and a couple of false starts where it looked like he was right on the precipice of the majors late last year in spring training this year. Um, he's been dealt some setbacks and rolled right through them. It's really fun to watch teams try who are still fighting for their playoff lives need to and decide to incorporate impressive rookies on the fly so close to the end of the season, not just Lizardo and Nico Horner, but also A.J. Puck of the A's. Mm-hmm. Um, it is great to see you know, Kyle Lewis, for whom it was an even longer injury-stained slob through the minors, uh, to see his talent. You know, We finally get to see it on display in the majors. Hopefully we're going to see him be able to make something of his career after it looked like it had been derailed. Um, but those most interesting ones are the guys that playoff teams are depending on puck and Lizardo, especially just because I find the A's modular pitching staff endlessly fascinating. So two rookies, I have to ask you about locally, Bruce Dark, Gradrall, obviously a little bit of a bumpy road, but it's going to be more about perhaps what he looks like this month in terms of not necessarily results, but can he repeat his delivery? Can he throw strikes? to see if he makes the postseason, knock on wood, postseason bullpen. But Luis Arise in a leaner year would probably be a pretty good rookie of the year candidate. Certainly he's not going to have any chance this year. But the the Twins have had those two guys come up. They've also relied on a lot of very off-the-radar guys. Recently, Ryan Lamar, Lamont Wade, even A-Ray Adrianza, who's now hurt, playing a lot more than you'd ever hope for. What have you seen, though, from these two Twins rookies as far as um, – you know, polish from her eyes and just sheer brute force from Gratterall. Have you enjoyed watching those two guys play? Yeah. I mean, they're two very different cases at this for sure. point. Arise. Sure. Uh, he's been around for a few months now and it's, it, because of his style, he almost doesn't feel like a rookie already. He's a past um, too. The, the barreling up of the baseball, the mature at bats, the, clustering of his launch angle. The guy does not miss hit the baseball very often at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just the way he's adapted, it's been, I don't know, three weeks now, I think, since we started seeing teams pinching in their left fielders to a preposterously shallow depth, <laughs> yeah. sort of challenging him to hit the ball hard the other way. And he is both finding his hits anyway, his singles, and starting to develop the ability to do that. Uh, he went over the left fielder's head 
for I think it was a double uh, at the beginning of this Washington series. Yep. Uh, yep. Over so Soto. Watching him. That's right. Yeah, and watching him evolve um, when he already came to the majors in such a polished sort of state, but to have to you have to make so many adjustments, and especially when you're a guy who relies on barreling it up and getting it into that low line drive launch angle band, teams are going to start manipulating you. They're going to go high and then low. They're going to try and change your eye level because that also will start changing your swing path. And it's a challenge on you to guess right, to maintain a swing that you can keep on playing with the pitch, no matter where the pitch is in the strike zone. The speed with which he's made those adjustments is really impressive and a ton of fun to watch. Uh, Gratterall, it's a little bit different. There's a lot more brute force to him. Um, and coming up, throwing the fastball, not even as hard as he can, but we're seeing him sitting in the upper 90s. That's great. Obviously, it's not missing bats at all yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think until he's not going to magically start missing a lot of bats with that fastball until the command improves somewhat, uh, that is a longer process. But what he could do in the short term that would make me a little more interested in him, especially as a postseason option, is start showing the confidence to throw that slider more often. In the big leagues, with the fastball that he throws, which is great in terms of velocity, it's not super special in terms of movement. Uh, if he can't keep hitters off of it by throwing the slider a lot, even in relief, he's not going to get a lot of strikeouts and he's not going to avoid hard contact the way they need him to against the elite offenses they're going to see in October. So down the stretch, what I'll be watching is his slider usage. Not just is he throwing it, but is he being able to throw that strike to ball slider, get some whiffs with it and make hitters respect it more. Yeah, that's that. I think that makes perfect sense. Now, my galaxy brain idea that has been like a snowball rolling down a hill has been that the twins should seriously consider bringing up Alex Kirilov for the stretch run. And I know you don't want to expose guys too early. You don't want to start their 40 man roster status early because you need to add so many guys every single year. That's a nuance that I contend a lot of fans don't understand fully. However, their outfield is a triage unit. It was before Jake Cave got hurt. It was before Max Kepler came down with this this scapula thing. They need depth in the outfield, and now that Buxton's out for the year, that was kind of the key contention. If Buxton comes back and then you've got Kepler and Rosario, you really don't have room for Kirilov. Fine, no big deal. If now, well, not if, now that we know Buxton is not going to be back this year, means you're going to be playing Max Kepler in center. Again, as soon as he gets healthy, whether that's today or in the next couple days, you're still going to be relying on Jake Cave or Marwin Gonzalez in a position where you could have that very polished bat of Alex Kirilov in there. Am I being way too forward-thinking, maybe a little bit too impulsive to say the Twins should have definitely seriously considered bringing him up? Um, I I followed this conversation and I can see both sides. I would say this, that it's very tempting, especially if you were in a camp where you were a little more concerned than I am, at least, that the Indians are actually going to catch the Twins. Sure. I just don't think that's going to happen. I think the Twins have, as we all know, a very soft schedule for most of the rest of the season. I also think they just have a superior roster. Cleveland is, they got it together for a while and then lost Jose Ramirez to injury, the cracks are starting to show a little bit again, although they're still they're still a very good team. I think the Twins are going to win the division, and I think they'll do it handily enough that they don't need to pull out that last stop that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I also think when you start to look a little further and say, okay, if they are going to win the division, there's no chance of them surpassing the Yankees and taking the second spot in the playoffs. They don't have a lot to play for down the stretch except to sew up this AL Central. And after that, as I look into October, I foresee less of a need for that outfield depth than there is at this moment. You know, you're hoping at least that the rest that they've been giving Kepler, Gonzalez, Jake Cave is fully on the shelf, just not officially at the moment. But you're hoping that come the opening night of the ALDS, those three players are not 100%. No one is this time of year, but back up into the 85, 90% range in terms of health. And at that point, Kirilov becomes a lot less important. You feel like maybe you started this clock for nothing and more, much more importantly than that, because go ahead and start the clock if you think it's going to make a real difference. I think there are a couple of other factors you have to throw in, which are, I think Kirilov has spent half or even a little more of this season at first base. Mm-hmm. Um, they clearly aren't super confident in his defense in the outfield, and I know part of that is uh, maintaining what is a, a surgery-repaired elbow. Um, but he's played a lot of first base this year. He's a bat who maybe he comes up and just lights the world on fire, as some rookies do. Other guys, right away, the league has you, and you have to make the first adjustment that's harder and there's no time for that to happen. Um, so I think they were probably right not to pull that trigger. I don't think that it's going to change at this point. I'd be surprised if they do end up calling him up. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was certainly something that they had to think hard about. And I I tend to trust that they did, but ultimately I agree with the decision they made just because they have a lot of competent players around. It's just, they're all hurt in these ways that, you can't just count out a Kepler or even a cave for the rest of the year. You're assuming they'll be back at some point in some fashion where you're probably a little more confident with them than you would be with Kirilov, and they provide a little more versatility or defensive competence as well. I'm especially interested to see if Kirilov ends up at first base long-term. C.J. Crone to me, is not a kind of guy you have to rely on next year. You could easily non-tender him like the Rays did. The the elbow or the, sorry the uh, the thumb and I I don't know if the wrist is bothering him, but I know the thumb especially has sapped a lot of his effectiveness to the point where he's really a liability offensively right now. So it wouldn't surprise me if the long term vision is for Kirilov to play first and then Trevor Larnick to come up and play in a corner outfield spot eventually. That's why I'm still banging the drum for them to trade Eddie Rosario. I don't think it'll necessarily happen, but that's just my idea. So. I get, I get where you're coming from with that, and I guess I should ask, do you have anything to add to my idea about either trading Rosario or Kirilov before we move on to something else? No, I think you're, I think you're right to identify that that's where they have an excess of depth. If Rosario were hitting a little better down the stretch, it'd be almost easier to envision mm-hmm. them trading him just because then you know his prospective trade price would be higher. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're on track with both of those thoughts yeah and it's too bad you couldn't trade him to toronto because they already have randall gritchick so who wouldn't want another one but (laughs) they don't really have that third or fourth starter the twins would like to get in a trade so uh such is life but anyway so transitioning here a little bit i wanted to break down what you think the final playoff field will look like so the yankees and astros have it locked down in their division AL Central, it sounds like you're pretty confident in the Twins. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I am too. I think all they really should have to do this weekend is win one and then obviously 
keep their head above water the rest of the season, win 97, 98 games, and then it's pretty much a lock. So that comes to the wild card. You've got Oakland, you've got Cleveland, you've got Tampa Bay, and uh, Tampa has struggled a little bit of late. Oakland has been very good. Actually, I, I wrote the notes for Oakland series against Texas for their uh, for Texas's regional sports network, and Oakland has the third best winning percentage in all of baseball since August 1st. So I'm going with Oakland and Cleveland. It would be crazy, though, if the Twins somehow miraculously swept Cleveland this weekend and then Cleveland didn't make the playoffs at all. I don't see that happening, but Oakland and Cleveland, and I, I want to say I think Cleveland will go to Oakland for that first wild card game. What do you think? I have Tampa hosting Oakland in the wild wow. card, and I don't think Cleveland will make it. Wow. Um, I think if Cleveland were fully healthy, of course, it's a different story. But then again, it's not. We shouldn't pretend that uh, the Rays are exactly fully healthy. Right. The Rays have superior depth. The Rays are exceptionally well run. They have this fearsome bullpen that they're going to ride pretty hard down the stretch. Uh, and their offense, after a, a prolonged trough, is coming back into its own. Uh, particularly Austin Meadows, who's been the heartbeat of that lineup when it's been at its been at its best this year. Uh, is raking since the start of September. Yeah, he's got the Uh, highest OPS in baseball this month. Right, right. And they've made some moves over the course of the season, not concentrated around the deadline or anything, but just uh, substitutions along the way that have allowed them to shore up their weakest points offensively. Even, you know, a lot of those have been created by injuries. Things Mm -hmm. like Yandy Diaz getting hurt and not being able to um, count on him, or I think it was, I think it's Josh Lau, but uh, <laughs> the lows and the Lows, there are too many of them. I can't keep track at this right. point. They lost the best one. It was Brandon. It was Brandon. Brandon Lau uh, got hurt. So <laughs> that was a blow to them, but they have the depth to absorb that. And I think their schedule down the stretch is easier than Cleveland's. Um, so I have them holding on to the top spot, which I think they have right now, but only by a half game or something. And then Oakland beating out Cleveland because Oakland's a really impressive team. But so any of those three, let's just assume that all three of them make the playoffs. Obviously it can't happen, but just play with me hypothetically here. Which of those teams has the best chance to unseat Houston? Because as we know, in October, anything can happen. (sighs) Oakland does. Um, I love the Rays and in a single game, this is the, the real paradox of it is if I have to win a single game, I might just go with the Rays because I think they're going to give you four innings of Blake Snell if he's fully healthy or four innings of Ryan Yarborough if Snell isn't. Boy, Yarborough's been Colin good lately. Poche and Nick Anderson and this parade of these relievers who are just overwhelming. Um, but over a, a you know even a five-game series against a team with an offense as good as the Astros, we watched the Rays and the Astros beat each other up just a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. uh, when Tampa visited Houston. I like Oakland's offense to be able to hang with Houston, and while Oakland's pitching staff is a little bit mm, inconsistent lately, sure. they have a great team defense. They have a really impressive lineup now that Marcus Semien has become a stud, a mm-hmm. star. Um, and I think they have more ways to win games, which you need when you're facing the Astros because the Astros don't have one specific vulnerability. So on the National League side, I have Atlanta, St. Louis, and the Dodgers. Not 
super controversial, but anything you think is going to be different? No. Those are the division winners for me. And then the wild card, I've got Washington and Chicago. I know that Bailey's not going to like that, but it's obviously neck and neck for that wild card spot between Chicago and Milwaukee. How do you see it playing out? Well, I have Washington last into the top spot. It was about coming up on a month ago that I put out my first playoff predictions since the start of the year and said uh, that I had Milwaukee eclipsing the Cubs for the second wild card spot. I haven't revisited that real closely in the last few days. Christian Yelich going down changes the tenor of it, if right, not the right. fact. Um, I guess I'll say, I will say the Cubs take that second wild card at this point too, just because I don't love the Mets or the Phillies to sustain good performances down the stretch sure. and push them aside. And I think the Brewers will miss Yelich severely. Uh, but I love the way Craig Council manages a, especially a pitching staff, but a top to bottom roster in September. He's going to keep the Brewers around even without Yelich. Um, and I wouldn't rule out the dark horses from the NL East because those are a couple of fairly desperate teams and extremely talented teams who have been underachieving for a lot of the season. Um, I'll still ultimately say it's Washington hosting Chicago and then Washington winning pretty handily in the wild card game. So do you think any of those teams that you mentioned can mess with the Dodgers. I, I frankly think the Dodgers are my team out of the NL with Atlanta, not far behind because I really like Atlanta this year. And then obviously Houston, it, you know, it's easy to pick the favorites, obviously. So Houston LA would be the world series. Everyone would expect, but man, I really like Atlanta this year too, but of the wild card teams who could certainly trip up the Dodgers and maybe make Atlanta's or St. Louis's path to the world series a little different. Which of those wildcard teams do you think has the best chance? The only one with any chance is the Nationals. Uh, Those other teams are not in the Dodgers class at this point. It's not even, not even close. Washington is, and you know, even in taking two out of three from the twins, we saw some of their warts this weekend in the twin cities. Um, They have a weak bullpen. They aren't a great, defensive team uh and the depth in the lineup is not quite what you envision uh but the heart of that lineup can really beat beat people up and the starting rotation is dominant Mm -hmm. so they could pose a credible threat but the dodgers will sail past them i agree with you dodgers braves which last year was a division series matchup and felt sort of like a gentleman sweep the dodgers just sort of nudging the braves gently home uh this time I think if that NLCS materializes, which is no guarantee uh, that it would be a really compelling series. I still think the Dodgers are better and there's no particular matchup advantage to Atlanta. Uh, but Atlanta closed a lot of its holes uh, over the past off season. And then again at the deadline with right. their trio of bullpen additions. So I think the nationals have some of the best raw talent in baseball. I mean, obviously it's not going to stack up with, the Dodgers, but you've got guys like Victor Robles who has not quite rounded into the player that they envisioned yet, but you know, still a very nice player. And they've got some pieces that could make them interesting. But I agree with you that once you get past four or five in that lineup, you're contending with the Brian Dozers. And I mean, Howie Kendrick's having a nice year. You could bump him up to five, I guess. But yeah, after you get past those first few guys, there's a lot less to respect about that lineup, but they can still beat you up near the top. So I think we kind of agree that Houston and LA are the 
teams to beat. Now, you had said that you thought the Minnesota Twins maybe not necessarily would, but definitely could win the World Series. Do you still feel that way? Well, at least in the sense that any team that makes it to a full playoff series has a perfectly credible chance at that. Sure. Um, I think we all have to acknowledge that some things have shifted under their feet, even as they've continued toward the division title where, um, you know, when I was seeing that possibility, it was, well, Byron Buxton could be back in center. Well, you know, you still have this lineup of Kepler and Cruz and Crone and Sano and uh, Garver and all of them fully healthy. None of those things are really holding up at this point. Do I still think there's a real chance? I think I do. Um, a lot of that is faith in what this front office and coaching staff have assembled in terms of they're right on the cutting edge of any broad trend you want to look at in Major League Baseball in terms of how the game is played. Um, they have guys who are really self-actualized as hitters. They have a ton of great pitchers that they can throw at people. And I think we, just because of a lot of the struggles in the starting rotation recently and some of the guys that were reliable early who haven't been late in the bullpen, that it's easy to overlook just how deep this bullpen is at this point with Trevor May and Tyler Duffy pitching the way they are with a, you know, a sort of curtailed role for Martin Perez come October, Mm -hmm. he becomes higher utility. And I think there's a lot of, um, I, I hate the term chemistry, but a lot of cohesion in that clubhouse that is by design and was carefully designed. Uh, you've been in that clubhouse. You see the way it, it sort of maps out. There's this row of all of the u- utility players who are also Venezuelan, mm-hmm. and a lot of them are late bloomers, and they kind of they vibe on the same level very, very much. Same with May and Kyle Gibson and Jake Odorizzi in a row there. There are ways that they fit the pieces together so that these guys can lean on each other and get the most out of one another that I think still gives them the upside of beating the Yankees and challenging the Astros. It's a lot harder road than it would be if they were healthy, but I don't think we can rule it out because there's a ton of talent there. And there's also a great support system in place from the players up to the coaches, up to the front office. And to your cohesion point to having Miguel Sano locker next to Nelson Cruz isn't an accident either. So um, we'll see who's back in the lineup for the first game of the Cleveland series, but it's going to be interesting to see how that all comes together. I, I like your point about the bullpen. Since the trade deadline, I believe they're third in ERA. At least they were when I checked last time I was at Target Field, which would have been the night before last. And I think a lot of people would be surprised by that. But when you start looking at names and roles, again, assuming Sam Dyson can help you by that time, and I don't think that's a guarantee, but I think it's a 50-50 proposition, you start looking at you go Rogers, Dyson, Romo, May, Duffy. Zach Littell has a 0.83 ERA since mid June, and they did send him back from a num- for a numbers game. But they have enough pitching. And then again, like you said, Martin Perez in a higher leverage role. Maybe he throws 95 and goes just cutter and slider, cutter changeup. You know, just kind of pairs down his repertoire. There is a a high level of intrigue for me because these guys are not all household names, but when we saw how teams managed their bullpens last year, if it's five and dive or four and and get out for Jake Odorizzi, 
Kyle Gibson, and less so for Jose Barrios, assuming he pitches like he did against Washington. That, that pitching staff is not as woeful as maybe fans have grown accustomed to thinking here in the last couple months, is, is my analysis. I know that's maybe not going to be popular if I were to say it on Twitter, but there's a way that Rocco can piece this together where they're certainly not going to go toe-to-toe with Houston, but they can make this thing work. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty astute way of putting it is, you know, there, there is this perception that the pitching staff is broken at this stage, and I think that's just as outdated as the idea that the starting rotation is just lock solid. Right, um, right. Yeah, they're dealing with a lot of injuries now, and there are guys that you have to wonder a little bit about the performance, even including Barrios. Um, but there's plenty of reason to believe that when, again, when that division series opens, which is fully three weeks from today, um, you could be looking at a lot of guys who are feeling healthier, feeling fresher, ready to do what they were doing in the first half of the year. And again, in compressed roles with a little bit less, you know, when I talk about moving Perez into the bullpen or just shortening his starts a lot, I want to see him facing a lot more left-handed batters. He shifted over on the rubber. He has a way to attack lefties that's been extremely effective. It's He's still not a guy you want facing a righty a third time or something like that. But mm-hmm. if you can get him in and out and you can have Gibson fresher and getting his velocity back, uh, suddenly the arrows start pointing in the other direction pretty quickly. And there's plenty of time for that to happen. Yeah, I liked that he switched where he was on the on the rubber because I think it allows him to backdoor that cutter to righties and front door to lefties a little more. That's kind of what he alluded to when asked why that was the case. But I like to see guys you know, who, who are struggling. I know that Perez came into the last start with like a 5-6-4 ERA in the second half and, you know, clearly not who he was to start the season – and it can be easy to kind of dig your heels in and say, well, this was working earlier in the year and I'm just going to try to get back there. Anytime that you make that change to me tells me that this guy's invested in the idea that he needs to do something different or he's going to keep getting pounded. So, yeah, if you can go three or four innings with him, maybe Zach Littell gives you two and then you line up your guys, that gives you a very real chance to beat some of these other teams. I mean, you might not be 50-50 with the Yankees or maybe maybe it actually is close to 50-50 with the Yankees, but... If the Astros is 60-40, that still means if you win the series, it's not like going to be the shock of the century. That's right. Yeah, and again, you can close the loop and say the coaching staff deserves a ton of credit for the way that they've set up these players and sort of drawn out their open-mindedness to say, you know, we want to get you across the rubber, Martin, so that you can – not just the cutter, but he's executing his sinker to that uh, arm side side of home plate much mm-hmm. better than he was up until the last couple of starts. That's important. They've gotten Trevor May and Tyler Duffy, not just through the process of adding a true slider, but then through the process of being comfortable throwing it to the point that they both now eliminated their curveball. Mm-hmm. They're just fastball slider guys, and suddenly they're dominant. Um, so, yeah, the ability to get the most out of these guys can sort of supersede the, the variation in talent, you know, that they could have made up by going out and being splashier at the trade deadline. That's a hard thing to forecast, but as I look at it and I see that what they've done over the arc of the year, I can envision it continuing into October and 
if it does, then you're also throwing something at the extremely well-prepared Yankees and Astros that they're not necessarily expecting. Sure. Yeah, there's no question about that. Let's switch gears again, talk to the talk about the Cubs a little bit. Assume they make the wild card game, as you and I have both suggested. Who do you think starts the wild card game? And in an ideal world, who would you rather have start the game? Because, I mean, if we assume that they're fighting for their playoff lives up until the end of the season, that means you may not be able to line up the rotation how you want it. Now, with that said, if there is a number one with a bullet candidate, I've certainly not seen it. That means that maybe I'm not watching that closely from a distance, but who do you like and who do you think starts if things don't line up perfectly? They flipped John Lester and Kyle Hendricks not too long ago. I think at the, the over the this past weekend, in order to line it up such that Lester would start a game 162 if if it if it's important that day, mm-hmm. and Hendricks would start a wild card game or a game 163 tiebreaker. Um, I think that's more correct. Hendricks is a better choice for that job than Lester. But at this point, given what's happened over the last few weeks, I think if they could make this work somehow without stretching him out or especially pitching him on short rest, they would slide you Darvish into that slot. That's what performances have dictated over the last several turns through the rotation. Darvish is emerging as the guy that we knew him to be when he first entered the majors, a strikeout machine. He is throwing strikes consistently. Um, there are still going to be times when he gets rung up for a couple of homers and a start, but he's working the entire zone. He's got a bevy of pitches and he's starting to command them in a much more consistent way. He's looking healthier than he has really in the past, well, throughout his Cubs career. (laughs) Um, and I think at this point he'd be the absolute best choice. But again, as you say, they're very unlikely to have that choice at this point. Now let's say, everything clicks and they win the world series. What does that path look like to you? Cause I know you obviously think that both LA and Atlanta are leaps and bounds better than them right now. But again, we've been through situations where maybe the team we thought least likely to win the world series wins it. What would that look like in your estimation? If somehow some way they brought another world series to the North side. It's not really that hard to envision. Sure. You've already got, Darvish pitching well, and Jose Quintana's been up and down lately, but pretty good over the course of the season after a tough start. Uh, You can pretty easily see those two continuing on the path that they're on and being productive. Uh, Hendricks, he's just one tick off from being his best self lately. Uh, There's no reason to think that he can't pitch good innings down the stretch here and push them into the playoffs and then continue doing it in October. He's done that before. And then the wild card becomes Lester. Uh, Cole Hamels is diminished at this point. There's really not much chance he'd be part of a playoff rotation if they were drawing ever to get to the point of needing to draw one up. Lester is the wild card. He has had these sags throughout August and into early September. It's three out of the past four years now, I think, only to turn it around down the stretch and when they've made the playoffs to pitch very well there. It's just a lot of grit and a lot of he's great at repeating his release point. He makes the adjustments he needs to make. Um, I think Lester will bounce back. So that's all to the good. Now, the other issue is their bullpen has been horrendous at times and merely bad at others. 
uh, and the offense has been inconsistent. It's not that hard to imagine those things smoothing out. You know, they will get Craig Kimbrell back at some point in the next week here to sort of stabilize the very back end of the bullpen. Uh, they would need, in addition to Rowan Wick, who's been a pleasant surprise, they would need Steve Ciszek and Brandon Kinsler to stabilize and do what they normally do. And they would need maybe one more pop-up guy to really get right in a hurry. But that's not hard to imagine. They've got a long list of guys who are just talented enough that it could happen. On the offensive side, even easier to imagine how it goes right. It's just a matter of will it actually, because you've been expecting it to go right for the last couple of years without a whole lot of payoff for that. So what that would mean is Anthony Rizzo gets his power stroke back. He's been gutting his way on base over the last couple of months, but clearly dealing with a back issue and a bit diminished in terms of power. Chris Bryant is playing through a knee injury that sapped his power for a long time, but he hit a couple homers in one game during their series in San Diego that just concluded. If they make the playoffs, they're going to get Javi Baez back, and he'll play shortstop, and then they could slide Horner, who's contact and sort of uh, he's more of that ground ball single, really old school kind of guy, but does those things well. They could slide him over to second. Now it's a really formidable lineup, especially if Kyle Schwarber and Nicholas Castellanos are hitting the way they've been hitting for the last couple of months now. Um, you add those things up and suddenly it's, it's a juggernaut. That's what uh, the Cubs front office has envisioned them becoming each of the last couple of years when they've built the teams. That's what they've been expecting to happen. All of these tumblers fall into place and even the Dodgers have a hard time beating the Cubs. It's just it feels more and more improbable with each passing day because it's been so long since we saw it on any kind of consistent basis. When you see what Jorge Soler is doing in Kansas City, what does your mind or heart think? Um, basically, that that was kind of always in there. The probability of it coming out was relatively low, largely for reasons of health. He wasn't getting the reps to reach this level of you know, consistency because he tends to get hurt a lot. But being close to the everyday DH in Kansas City has saved his legs, has stopped him from getting the oblique strains and the hamstring strains that were derailing him while he was in Chicago. And he hasn't been pinched for playing time the way he was while he was in Chicago either, not forced into any platoons. Playing every day has been a huge boon to him. Now, it's still an indictment of the Cubs hitting development that he is doing this, but Schwarber has only over the last 60, maybe 90 days, been able to do what he's doing. Uh, this is the kind of stuff that exposes how the Cubs are falling behind the analytical cutting edge. Even the Royals are outpacing them at developing and maximizing power potential. Um, it's something they should be doing better. They're not. And in that sense, it's frustrating, but at the same time, Solaire wasn't in a position in Chicago where this was ever likely to happen for him. Now, you mentioned Baez and he could be back in October, but the path to October goes through, I mean, the next two weeks without him. And I, as much as I hate as as much as I hate the questions are that are like, how much does this matter? How much does this hurt? To what extent is the team feeling the absence of Baez? especially in light of the fact that Addison Russell has not been very good this year. Yeah, it's everywhere. I mean, right before he got hurt, 
uh, just a couple of days before he got hurt. He won Sports Info Solutions Defensive Player of the Month for August for the entire major leagues across all positions. He's been a phenomenal defensive shortstop this year. His first season just playing a single position all year in the majors. Uh, He's taken full advantage of it. He's been tremendous there. The offense has been a little less consistent because the demands of being the everyday shortstop are pretty significant. And he's got an approach that needs constant maintenance and can be difficult. Um, He was just starting to sort of click back in after a prolonged slump. He was getting to the point where he was working deeper into counts than you almost ever see him do and then getting good outcomes at the end of them. Um, So I think it's been huge that they've lost him when they did, when their offense needed a slight, you know, gearing up not to lose one of its crucial pieces. And when the defense, which has really been average or worse for the last calendar year now could so ill afford to lose him because their pitchers aren't out, also aren't out there missing a whole lot of bats at starters or relievers with Darvish accepted. Uh, so it's been crucial. It's every bit as much of a loss for that team as Christian Yelich is for the Brewers, even though Yelich is a better player than Baez. Yeah, I think that makes sense. If you were to pick an unheralded, I don't necessarily know that hero is the right word of this Cubs team, but an underappreciated person who's performed very well this season. Who is it? Because, I mean, David Bodie, I think, based on raw stats, looks like he's had a pretty decent year. But Victor Caratini is kind of who jumps out to me. Who would you say is, in your mind, that player? Yeah, it's probably Caratini. Um, I guess it'd be him or perhaps, depending on just how unheralded you have to be to count, uh, Schwarber, who had a rough start and people started sort of giving up on him after two inconsistent seasons. And then lately he's just been a, an absolute monster, not just hitting for a lot of power, but walking a lot and striking out almost never. That's been really impressive, but Caratini filled a crucial gap uh, when Wilson Contreras got hurt for this team. In fact, I think that's happened twice now. Um, He's also, you know, even when Contreras is fully healthy, Contreras is a better hitter having a good year. Caratini is a, a competent bat and a far better pitch framer than Contreras is uh, on a team that relies a lot on framing because, again, these are guys who need called strikes. They don't miss many bats. They don't induce a lot of swings and misses. They're going to thrive when their strike zone gets a little bigger. Um, so Caratini has been able to help them when they've most needed it in that regard. Um yeah, I, w- I would say it comes down to those two. Bodie has had a, a very strange sort of streaks and slumps and uh, sometimes getting hits when they don't necessarily pay off a whole lot for the team. So the other team might not be bearing down on him quite as much that kind of year. What have you seen? Obviously the numbers are eye-popping good, but Nicholas Castellanos has been terrific for the Cubs. Exactly what the doctor ordered when he was traded over, what have you, what's your analysis of his, how much he's helped the Cubs to this point? Well, he, he delivered just a, an actual spark. Like his personality is very um, brash, very sort of go get it. And that was something the team needed just when he arrived. They're caught in a bit of a late summer doldrums. Um, That's been a big thing. The power has been, a mild surprise, and I think uh, 
he is he's got this funky setup and swing, uh, standing tall and the big leg kick. The swing is unorthodox. It always has been, but because he has such a feel for it, no one's tried to correct it out of him too much. It's the guy where you just let him hit it hard and see what he can do. I think the big change that actually happened before he joined the Cubs, it was late in his Tigers tenure, he started looking for and sitting on breaking pitches a little more. He used to be a guy that was always hunting fastballs. And if you just resisted the temptation to throw him a hittable one, you were going to have a pretty good chance of getting him out. There have been times now when he's in even what would normally be a fastball count. Pitchers try to exploit what they know about him. He sits on a slider and yanks it into the bleachers. Um, So that's an evolution that was long in coming for a guy who's been in the majors now five, six years. Uh, But it's been an important one, and I think it's rounding out his game to some extent. There's still things he isn't great at, especially defensively. And he swings a lot. He's never going to be a guy who draws 80 walks a year. Um, But he has given them a charge by essentially adapting to the modern game, saying, I'm not going to see a fastball, even in counts where traditionally I would, because that's just not how MLB works anymore. And he's adapted his swing and his approach to that. Is in your estimation, is Ben Zobrist completely done? Yeah, pretty close to it. Um, I don't think he has a home run this year, admittedly, and not very many plate appearances, but also it's 2019 and he doesn't have a home run. Right. So, uh, yeah, he's, he's as close to washed up as you can be. Um, I think even coming into the year, it's strange. He's very well respected. I won't even say he's not liked, but it's just that he is not the sort of uh, magnetic personality clubhouse presence that maybe he's been played up as. He's very likable, but not necessarily a guy who changes the tenor of your clubhouse for the better just by being around. The team did not worry a whole lot internally, I'm saying, about losing him um, when he was gone for a few months for personal reasons other than that they wanted a guy who can get on base, which he still does fairly well. Um, But if all that's left is getting on base, not hitting for any power, not having any speed, and the defensive versatility is waning the way you would expect it to, and he's heading toward 40 pretty fast now, um, yeah, he's running out of ways to be helpful to a ball club. Now, last Cubs thing before we get to the home stretch of the show, what has been your thought of how Craig Kimbrell has pitched. I mean, obviously we know what the numbers say and he's had stretches where he's been good and stretches where he hasn't been good. How are you feeling about that investment for the Cubs right now? I think it was a good investment that will ultimately pan out fine. The timing has been unfortunate and I think we'll continue to feel that way into the off season just because I don't necessarily see things going well for them down the stretch. And I don't think, uh, Kimbrell's going to come back and be fully himself anytime this year. Um, but he clearly suffered from not having a spring training, which is not his fault. The market was stupid. It was frankly stupid. Yeah. There was nothing, nothing well-founded about his being stranded in free agent waters for that long. Um, but he suffered from not having that when he got there and he got ramped up a bit. The team I think kind of rushed him up to the big leagues to try and salvage a bullpen that was fighting for its life. 
Um, and then there were some problems along the way of the Cubs not knowing not just how to use him, but literally how his pitch mix works. There were times when uh, Caratini would be setting up calling for a low fastball and a one-two count, and that's not where Kimbrell's fastball works best. Um, he's a guy who has to attack all quadrants, but can be most comfortable attacking the top of the zone with the heater, setting up that curveball, whether he's setting it up to freeze a guy for a called strike or to get it down into the dirt. Um, just the, the pitch sequencing, the way they were asking him to locate, didn't line up with what he does well. And so the team was not either aware of or just not adapting quickly enough to the changes in who he is as a pitcher and the changes in the modern game where he got beat up in a few outings that frankly weren't his fault. Um, so I think going into next year, he'll be better used. He'll be fully prepared for the season and he'll be relatively healthy because he's been relatively healthy throughout his career. This season accepted. Uh, it's just timing wise. It's pretty unfortunate because they waited until June to bring him in, treated him as sort of a season savior. And then, he wasn't able to deliver on that for reasons that were only partially his fault. Yeah, that's a lot to put on a guy that uh, uh, even a veteran, it's still a lot to put on someone. So I, I totally understand where he's coming from there. Um, two questions that came in on Twitter. I'll answer the first one and then we'll collaborate on the second. But Dervball wanted to know what's happened to Jeremy Jeffress. Heard he was released a week ago or so. Haven't heard anything since. In my conversations with people in the know, it sounds like he's getting prepared for next year, he's lining up the teams he would like to pitch for and working on building those bridges so that they can find a, a fit for him. He's not going to sign a minor league deal, is at least the forward-facing opinion right now, so we'll see how that pans out for him. But Javon Mosh wants to know, what are your thoughts on two-way players, and could you see the Twins doing something like that in the future? Now, I think that's really hard to project. I mean, the Rays had to draft Brandon McKay, and the... Angels had to be the team that basically came up in the Shohei Otani lottery. But do you – I like it. I mean, I think it's it's a cool idea. Michael Lorenzen does a, a decent job kind of going back and forth with it. But I don't know that I can really confidently say yes or no that the Twins will do it anytime in the near future. Yeah, it's hard to project when it'll happen. It'll happen. Uh, all 30 teams are going to have two-way players at some point in the next decade. Mm-hmm. Um not on a permanent basis per se, but starting next year, there is a benefit written into the rules and having a two way player. Um, right. Once that's the case, they're going to crop up more and more often. There are already plenty of guys who can walk along that line. You know, it's not just the big name guys. The angels have a two way player named Colin Walsh. I think yep, maybe that's right. that's Jared, right. Jared Walsh. Anyway, um, no, I think it's, and there's, a, Oh, maybe go ahead. I'm going to, I'm going to look at, I think it's Colin Walsh. I think okay. I think Jared Walsh is someone else. Yep. Yeah. Oh no, I'm Colin Walsh is a free. Up. Why does it say he's a free agent? I it must be Jared Walsh then. I'm bad at this. Yeah. Colin at Walsh used rate. to be a brewer. Yep, Jared Walsh is who we're looking for. There we go. The Rays also have another guy in their system who is likely to make it as a reliever slash bench bat kind of thing. Um, so don't look for a whole lot of Shohei Otani's or even Michael Lorenzen's, but there is a future for Brooks Kieschnick type guys, and it's not going to be 
a novelty or a rarity anymore because the rules will now benefit having a player like that. You can only carry 13 pitchers, but if you have a two-way player, he doesn't count toward your allotment of those. Um, so mm-hmm. teams will find more and more of them and take more and more guys who maybe could possibly have done it but never would have been asked to in the past and ask him to try it. Perfect. Well, let's let's wrap with MLB award predictions or at least how we would hand them out. And so AL MVP, Mike Trout is my vote without any hesitation. But I did ask if you're not if you are going to give it to Trout, who would be the one if you had to give it to someone in the non Trout division? So yeah, I would absolutely give it to Trout. But just to go a little off maybe the immediately obvious path, I'm going to say that the guy I would give it to if I couldn't give it to Trout might be Marcus Semyon, whom mm. I've already mentioned. I like it. But he has blossomed into a plus defensive shortstop who has already, he's drawn like 75 walks and he's going to hit about 30 homers with more than that, 40 doubles and triples this year. Uh, he has become everything the A's could possibly have dreamed he'd be really essentially a superstar caliber player who just because he'd been in the majors for a while being more like solid average and because he plays in Oakland isn't getting that attention but yeah he's he's not on Trout's level but he's right there with Alex Bregman and Mookie Betts and Rafael Devers on that second tier it's kind of fun how White Sox shortstops and former shortstops have broken out recently Tim Anderson obviously was off to a really great start and then uh, got hurt but having a really nice year for the White Sox as well so just kind of a little fun parallel structure there I think AL rookie of the year very obviously is Jordan Alvarez but Brandon Lowe or Lau would probably be in that mix if we had to go in another direction Vlad Guerrero Jr. not quite living up to the hype but I think he'd gladly sacrifice a rookie of the year if it means he can win an MVP down the line. So I think Jordan Alvarez is pretty much going to be the consensus here. Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Although I would, uh, perhaps controversially and perhaps just because I love him so darn much, slide Luis Arias in second. He's such a fun player, yeah. Uh, I think he is who everybody pretends Williams Astadio is, which (laughs) is interesting. Yeah, something like that. AL Cy Young, I have Garrett Cole. Um, Lance Lynn is having an incredible season, and so is Justin Verlander. And I think I think there was one other guy in the mix, but he's not coming to mind right now. But anyway, for me, I'm going Garrett. It's not overwhelming. I think Lynn's done a nice job, but I just I lean Cole just uh, ever so slightly. Well, I've got Verlander. I I think the argument for Cole is pretty strong, uh, but Verlander, it's. Maybe not quite as many strikeouts, but he has so many ways to get guys out. And I mean, I think he's going to threaten the all-time record for whip, wow. which is hard to do in a season when you know you're giving up 30 homers or whatever he's done. Um, just he's he is everything that you think is going to go extinct in the majors anytime now. Four or five pitches uh, distributes them pretty evenly. Going to rack up 220 innings before the year is out, even with presumably a small downshift in usage over these last few weeks. Uh, he's just so fun to watch. It carves opponents up, has that competitive fire. Um, yeah, I'll go with Verlander, but you're right that it's close. I What I like is that Verlander went through that 
when you talk about extinction, his career could have easily gone in that direction had he not basically resurrected himself in his, his early 30s. Not that he was horrible by any means, but it just looked like, well, maybe he's going to be another one of those guys that hits their early 30s and it's just kind of it for him. You know, Tim Lincecum. My, I guess my question is, do you think there's any chance Felix Hernandez can see that second uptick or do you think he's pretty much finished? No, he's shot. Yeah, it's not. Uh, That's too bad. It, maybe a few years ago had a chance to be the same thing, but at this point it's not. That's too bad. Um, for manager of the year, I have Rocco and Aaron Boone tied. I know that a tie would be statistically unlikely, but for me it's very difficult to differentiate these two. Aaron Boone deserves so much credit for how he's managed that Yankees team in the wake of basically everybody getting hurt. Like His entire starting outfield has been ravaged by injuries, and Brett Gardner's having just a, a tremendous season at like age 36, which is, you know, juiced ball and all, but I like to see Brett Gardner have success. So for me, I couldn't pick between those two. I had those two and uh, Kevin Cash in my sort of cluster. All three of them have helmed their teams past any, I think, I think median preseason expectations. All three teams have exceeded it significantly, despite dealing with a whole lot of injuries along the way. I'm going to give the smallest edge to Cash just because I think the way that he has juggled a lot of balls throughout the season with having, you know, the Twins and Yankees have battled a lot of injuries in their lineup, but they have such significant depth that they've never really been without a lineup for a significant stretch or been unable to uh, put up runs competitively. And so there hasn't been quite as much pressure on the manager to squeeze his pitching staff for innings and scoreless innings to keep them afloat, um, which Cash has done exceptionally well in the face of a Rays offense that had some injuries along the way that it really couldn't afford to sustain. Uh, But I think any of those three is a good answer. Can I just say don't sleep on Terry Francona either? Yeah, you know, and, and as I talked it through, I was thinking, you know, Francona also had to navigate a whole lot of unfortunate injuries. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it's like, are they really going to outstrip their preseason expectations? I think they're going to land pretty much right on them. Yeah, 80 um, or 90, and, was it, 94 wins, 95 wins, 93 wins, something like that? Yeah, and, you know, it's part of it is just a feel thing. I, Terry Francona does a great job. You, he's one of those guys you could – reasonably put in the mix for manager of the year every single year Mm -hmm. because we know he's great we know that his players love him we know he tends to outperform what you give him to work with um but it's i don't know just by feel i think it's one of those other three so nl mvp i've got cody bellinger i think that's pretty much a slam dunk especially since christian yelich went and messed up his knee and roxanne got the last laugh bailey you know that yeah, so um, <laughs> I threw out my body issue today. I, I don't even look at it because uh, I just don't see a need. But, um, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's been an impressive season for Bellinger. He's absolutely killing lefties. He's been just an absolute stud, and I, I don't think I could vote for anybody else. Yeah, even, you know, the offensive brilliance has waned just a hair. I think uh, teams have – Bizarrely, even with such a deep and scary Dodgers lineup, just kind of said, we're not going to let you beat us anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he's had to adjust to that as the season's gone along. 
but it's still been really impressive. And to me, the thing that separates him, even from, you know, there's a list of great players in the NL this year, not just Yelich, but Ronald Acuna, Anthony Rendon, JT Real Muto, Ketel Marte has had a bonker season playing essentially two different positions on an everyday basis. Um, but Bellinger, the speed and the outfield defense uh, are a separator for me. Just the way he patrols right field, the rocket arm that we've seen on display so many times this year, uh, he separates himself. Even if those things don't augment his value you know, in a war or warp sense all that much, he's already arguably the best hitter in the league. And to see him doing those things so consistently makes it a pretty easy call. So NL Rookie of the Year for me is fairly easy. Pete Alonso, I think Fernando Tatis Jr. was firmly in that mix before he got hurt. And I think Mike Soraka's had a really great year. But I have to be careful not to say Mike Soratka because I still yeah. have that name fresh in my mind. But um, for me, it's Pete Alonso. He's been unbelievable for the Mets this year, both in the clubhouse and on the field. So for me, that's not a difficult one. Yep, nope, that's a blowout. Tatis, I think, would have won. Yep. Maybe wouldn't have won, but would have deserved it if he'd stayed fully healthy. Um, and the other really interesting guy is the Pirates' Brian Reynolds, who is Oof, what a year. chasing the single-season record for BABIP by anybody since <laughs> 1930. Oof. Uh, so in the integrated history of baseball, the highest BABIP in a single season was Rod Carew's 1977, the year he chased a real 400 batting average. He had a 408 BABIP that year by the end of it. Uh, Reynolds, I think, is at 406 right now. He was above him until just a couple of days ago. Um, Reynolds is a really fun story that we'd be talking about a lot more if it weren't for Pete Alonso. And frankly, like you said, Tatis and Soroka is a pretty healthy crop. Is there any doubt Max Scherzer's the NL Cy Young? Yeah, because I have his teammate Steven Strasburg beating him. Oh, I like it. Is he uh, going to opt out? Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> I don't I'm know not either. even ready to consider the, the free agent market You're yet. You're not it's ready for so, the offseason yet. Yeah, it's so traumatized by last winter, and it's hard to imagine anybody wanting to go out into free agency right now. Yeah, willfully. Um, but Strasburg, if he's not the Cy Young winner, he's going to be a top three finisher. And boy, he's been just dominant this year. He's, he's adapted. He's become a kind of a very different pitcher throwing his sinker more often as everyone else in the league is throwing it less and inducing a ton of weak contact, pounding the zone. He's been a joy to watch and really, you know, he's fulfilled his potential and then some already, you know, we've given him much too hard a time for not being Tom Seaver because that was what he was drafted to be. He was already a great, now he's, I think deserves his first Cy Young and, has been in the conversation for a bunch of others. Will he want to hit this free agent market? I'm not sure, but he's the guy I want to push to the front of the pack and say, don't forget about the season we've just watched unfold for him. So kind of random question, but is he going to be a Hall of Famer? You know, he's not off the track per se. Yeah, not super, (laughs) Um, like not super slam dunk, but definitely you look at like seven or whatever straight years of double digit strikeouts per nine. He's just been unbelievable. I mean, his worst season ERA is three seven four or three six zero. He's been he's been wonderful. Yeah, five six weeks ago, I wrote a piece about him and about all the different things he's done this year that have changed him, uh, improved him in sl- slight but important ways. And 
made him the best pitcher in the National League. And I also did say at that point, yeah, he's not a credible Hall of Famer yet, but he's on the path toward being one if he stays healthy from here. Yeah, you don't have to squint uh, too hard. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I, I just mean uh, if you look at a path where he can – I mean if he loses his heat – which he, I, you know, he's throwing ninety three, ninety four now, so it's not like he's a fireballer. Oh yeah, he's got the stuff well, to that's, withstand. That's something I discussed in the piece. Was he's already lost his heat? He's down a couple miles an hour. He's made the adjustment, mm-hmm. and so now he's missing slightly fewer bats, but walking fewer guys. He's completely resisted the home run spike because he's moved to this repertoire that induces weak contact so consistently. Yep. If he just stays healthy, he's going to be in that class with a lot of other guys who stand on the, the fringes of the Hall of Fame, and most of them get left out because we've set far too high a standard for starting pitchers in the Hall. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he's he's in that conversation. All right, the last one, NL Manager of the Year. I'm going to go way off the board with this one. David Bell is mine because Cincinnati, <laughs> in my opinion, had no business even being decent this year. And I know they made some moves and – thought they were going to be better than they probably really deserve to be but he's managed a a pitching staff that has been strong and healthy and I think I don't know I mean as much as it's weird to give it to a fourth place manager I really do have a lot of respect for how he's conducted himself this year and maybe that's crazy no I I love it I love the boldness I think the willingness to stare down Clint Hurdle as consistently as he has been and the (laughs) sheer number of ejections the the fieriness is delightfully strange. He's got the red ass. Um, yeah, does he ever? <laughs> um, but I went a little more traditional. I'm picking Dave Roberts because I think it's hard at a certain point to keep coming into seasons with everyone talking about how your team didn't go make the big splash and instead they're playing a value game and counting on you to navigate and to know that my rotation is really nine guys and I have to balance all their egos and know that some of them are going to spend significant parts of the year on the DL, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. He's done it nimbly. He's done it admirably. He's continued to handle that pressure and guided them through a season that didn't end up being difficult for them at all. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think I, I think I predicted before this season <clears throat> foolishly that their streak of division championships would end this year. Not only didn't that happen, but it was absolutely never in doubt. (laughs) And that's a testament to Robert's ability to not let the clubhouse get stale, to keep challenging his players and soothing them and reassuring them that they're all valued members of the whole. And uh, it's worked really well. We'll see if he finally gets a ring out of it, but I'm giving him the manager of the year. Yeah, I think you could make compelling cases, at least in the way that we've seen these awards go for Brian Snicker and uh, Mike Schilt as well. But I really think I, I like the David Roberts pick because it's almost like handling those expectations is a, is a big deal. And it's difficult when I guess there, there's the saying that is, isn't it good as the enemy of great. And um, yeah, the, for the me, though, is the enemy of the good. Yeah. And for me, at some point you have such a good team that when you try to add more good to it, it doesn't return the value that you put into it. And so when I look at that roster and I'm like, yeah, you know, if they go get one more pitcher, I mean, they were great already. Certainly getting another great starting pitcher is not going to hurt, you know, Steven Strasburg, whatever. But 
if they don't win the World Series, does that mean they didn't improve their talent? That's the that's the quandary or the conundrum that I see is like the, their team is already so talented that adding more talent, while it might improve your World Series odds from 20 to 23 percent, that doesn't really register in the eyes of fans. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, World Series odds are always tricky to judge because they're not going to feel right for the very best teams. They're going to feel too low for those, mm-hmm. sometimes too high for the, the lesser seeds. And that's the reality that Dave Roberts is living in now. You know, he's lost two World Series in a row and an NLCS before that. And he's only three years at the helm. But this team, it's hard to say whether they've made a lot of concrete talent improvements or whether their machine of player development and then support from the field staff, Roberts and his coaches, right. has has that simply elevated the guys that they had around and the guys that they brought in allowed them to get the most out of them? Mm-hmm. Does Roberts get credit for that or does that go to the front office? That's, That's why question. one of the many reasons why it's so hard to vote on manager of the year anymore. Yeah. Well, that's all I have for you. We kept you a little longer than I had hoped for, and we made you wait a little bit, but thank you so much. Is there any of your work, either now or in the near future, that you'd like to plug? Yeah, I mean, people can find them in all the usual places. I had a few pieces up on BaseballProspectus.com this week, including one on the Twins postseason, especially pitching puzzle Mm -hmm. uh, that listeners of this will probably be interested in. And I'll be writing more there as the season winds down, winds up toward the playoffs, uh, as well as my email newsletter, Penning Bull, yes. which people can find out more about at PenningBull.com. Subscribe for sure. That's the best 11-11 you'll spend. And uh, I guess I don't know anything else that costs exactly 11-11, but it's yeah, all good. Well, that's, that's how I've cornered the market right there. Right on. Well, thank you so much for your time. You can follow him on Twitter at MATrueBlood. We'll be back on Tuesday, I think, talking to Tom Schreier about... Whatever happened in Cleveland, it's coming up here very soon. We still don't have a Twins lineup as we get late into the afternoon. So Rocco, again, probably going to the clinic to see who he's going to be able to bring back to Progressive Field with him. So for not Tom Schreier, but Matt Trueblood, for Justin Bailey across the room here for me producing, this is Brandon Warren saying thank you so much for listening to Midwest Wing, part of the Zone Coverage Podcast Network. Rock over London. Rock on, Chicago. (laughs) 